You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. I'm Cutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I update you on new members of the Associated Students of Colorado State University. Then I explain how intimate partner violence is on the rise in Fort Collins. After that, I give new updates on COVID-19 statistics and a new COVID-19 variant. Then we hear from Anton Schindler about short-lived baseball teams in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Coda tells us about how prosecutors are appealing the verdict, which resulted in Bill Cosby being freed. After that, Eliza Droder tells us about what's happening in CSU's athletics. Then, Aaron Fuller and Naomi Hilmer interview local band Radio Fluke about their work. Coda explains how Theranos' former CEO alleges that her former romantic and business partner abused her leading to the company's downfall. To conclude today's show, Portia Cook explains how invertebrates gained new rights in the UK. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your campus and local news for Tuesday, November 30th. Colorado State University students are in their 14th week of classes, and we are approaching finals quickly. Right before fall break, the Associated Students of Colorado State University met for their 12th session of the semester. ASCSU ratified a new associate justice and elections manager and voted on five pieces of legislation. Julia Patterson was unanimously ratified as an associate justice and Emery Jenkins was unanimously ratified as an elections manager. According to Piper Russell of the Collegian, Jenkins said, quote, What I do have a problem with is that it's such a small percentage of campus who's actually making the decisions of who's actually in the positions that we are in right now. And I think building a framework that other elections committees can use in the future is going to only serve to increase the number of voters we have every year, end quote. ASCSU voted on resolutions as well, such as Resolution 1505, Support for a Hunger-Free Campus Funding, which endorses the Hunger-Free Campus Bill and asks the Colorado Department of Higher Education to pursue funding solutions to support programs such as Rams Against Hunger. This resolution passed. Other pieces of legislation included resolutions 5101, 5104, and 5107. 5107 proposed recorded lectures for classroom comprehension which would announce mandatory recorded lectures by professors and teaching assistants, and this resolution also passed. For more information on Colorado State University Senate, visit collegian.com. Now on to local news. A Fort Collins man, his father, and his brother's girlfriend all died in a small plane crash over the weekend after an NFL game, according to Kyle Lylel of the Coloradoan. Noah Bruner was traveling in a small plane piloted by his father as they were returning from Minneapolis from the Minnesota Vikings NFL game. The three made a stop in Shadron, Nebraska. Shortly after taking off from there, the plane went down. The cause of the crash is still unknown. Bruner's father, Matthew Bruner, had a brother die in a car crash 19 years prior, and he did not want to make the drive at night. Noah worked at Power to Play Sports in Windsor as an operations assistant. For more information on the incident, visit coloradoan.com. The Fort Collins Police Services report that although Colorado State University's crime rate dropped by 20% once COVID hit, domestic violence cases rose significantly. In 2019, three cases were reported, and in 2020, up to 17 were reported. 
Molly Bohannon of the Coloradoan reported that no other category of crime saw an increase during the pandemic year. These reports do not include anything from off-campus where most incidents occur and where most CSU students live. Casey Malsum, Assistant Director of Victim Services at CSU's Women and Gender Advocacy Center, told Bohannon, quote, Usually sexual assault is what we see more often. Last year, that flipped and we saw more relationship violence than sexual assault. End quote. Malsum also said that there are three potential factors that contributed to the increase. The first one being more time spent with partners. People also had fewer opportunities to get space away from their partners. And lastly, there was a general decline in mental health due to increased isolation. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon on KCSU on 90.5 FM. Support for KCSU comes from Nosh Noko a locally owned food delivery service from local restaurants that want to provide food delivery to the NOCO community. Learn more about the NOCO NOSH app and how to order food at nokonosh.com. Dakota Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 updates for Tuesday, November 30th. Colorado State University reports that over 90% of students and staff are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. Under 2% of students and employees have not yet submitted vaccine records or exemption. Over 4,400 cumulative cases were reported among students, staff, and faculty at CSU. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of your vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces, if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 disposable mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19, along with over 45,000 cases and almost 380 deaths due to the virus. 73 COVID-19 patients reside in nearby hospitals, and intensive care units are at 105% capacity. 
The county reports a seven-day case rate of over 200 cases per 100,000 residents, and around 8% of tests administered in Larimer County come back positive for COVID-19. The state of Colorado reports over 826,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 9,400 deaths. Over 8.6 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and over 3.6 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. About 73% of eligible Coloradans are fully vaccinated, while about 83% of eligible people are partially vaccinated against COVID-19. The CDC reports over 48.1 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., along with over 776,000 deaths. Over 74% of people over the age of 5 are fully vaccinated against COVID-19, but community transmission remains high nationwide. In a statement posted on Friday, November 26th, the CDC said that a new COVID-19 variant, B11529, had been identified as a, quote, variant of concern, end quote. The variant has been named Omicron, and no cases of it have been reported in the United States yet. The variant was first caught and identified by South African researchers due to their robust public health and research systems. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Kuta Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 33 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode, we broke down a very important summer during a very important year in the history of baseball, known as Long Gone Summer. We talked about how Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire saved baseball from the brink of extinction, really, due to the frustration of the fans that came directly from the strikes and the lockdowns in 1994 and 1995. Today, however, we're going to talk about a couple of teams that were only around one or two or three seasons before they were either absorbed by another team or relocated elsewhere. So, let's get into it. The first team that I want to talk about came out of Seattle, about eight years before the Mariners moved into the Kingdome to give Seattle its current baseball team. In 1969, a man by the name of Dewey Soriano set out to create a brand new franchise to join the MLB American League. Soriano was a former pitcher and general manager for the Seattle Rainiers, who are now known as the Tacoma Rainiers, which is the current AAA affiliate for the Mariners. The creation of the team had a really rocky start, one that may have been a bit of foreshadowing. You see, Soriano had to ask William R. Daly, who was the owner of the Indians at the time, to underwrite a good chunk of the purchase price for the team. Now, Daly had already considered moving the Indians to Seattle, so having a claim in the team was good for him. Well, that and there was also a very nice 47% stock that Soriano sold to him for helping out with the team, so he was making a lot of money. Therefore, Daly was the team's largest shareholder and even became chairman of the board while Soriano remained as the team president. But this wasn't the only issue the budding team ran into. MLB decided that the pilots could not join the major leagues by themselves, 
as the odd number of teams would throw off the schedule and the playoffs and so on and so forth. So in turn, MLB decided that they couldn't join the league until 1971, which would be the year that the Kansas City Royals would join the American League. Interestingly enough, however, this date was moved up to 1969 due to some pressure from a Missouri senator by the name of Stuart Symington, who had pushed to get the Royals and the Pilots into the league as soon as possible. So, although it was completely out of their control, the Pilots were now in a time crunch in order to get everything that they needed to do in order to have a competitive baseball club by the start of the 1969 season. Oh, and uh, did I mention that the Pilots had to pay a $1 million due to the Pacific Coast League as compensation because they were promoted to the major leagues? Yeah, not much was going well for them. They were already losing a lot of money. But by the 1969 season, the Pilots were ready to take the field. They played at Six Stadium a converted minor league stadium that was previously the home of the, well, I guess now destroyed, Seattle Rainers. The Pilots joined the American League West with the Royals to build up a strong division alongside the Minnesota Twins, who won the division, by the way, that year, the Oakland Athletics, the California Angels, and the Chicago White Sox. They played under manager Joe Schultz, who was a coach for the St. Louis Cardinals, where he helped his team win three National League pennants and two world championships. Now, I know that that sounds like a pretty impressive resume, because it is, but with the Pilots, this would be the first time that he would be acting as the head manager. Now, although players said that they liked him, Schultz was known for two things primarily, his rather creative cursing and his questionable decisions as a manager. Once the Pilots relocated, Schultz lost his job and coached once again with the Royals and then the Detroit Tigers before he retired. And I feel like that really starts to paint a pretty clear picture of how this team turned out. In their one and only season, the Pilots went 64-98-1, with the one tie coming on Game 143 when the game couldn't be decided after 10 innings were played. The 64 win, 98 loss, and one tie record put the Pilots in dead last, four games behind the fifth place White Sox, and only a game and a half above the worst record in baseball. And looking through the lineup, you can kind of see why. The team's total batting average came out to a 234. Their best hitter, Mike Hegan, actually had a pretty decent year hitting 292 with 78 hits in 95 games. But most of the starters, like Tommy Davis, Don Mincher, and John Donaldson, couldn't find a lot of success at the plate, hitting just over 230 for the most part. Their starting pitchers for the Pilots struggled as well, with the Pilots' ace, Gene Brabender, going 13-14, and 14, with a 4.36 ERA in 40 games pitched. Fred Tabbitt had the best ERA of all the starters, with a 4.16 ERA in the 25 games that he worked, but even he was not safe from the amount of runs and hits that other teams would just continue to pile on. 
The best record on the team actually came from the Pilots' closer, Diego Segu, who was in his eighth year in the major leagues at the time. Segu went 12-6 with a 335 ERA and 12 saves. Now, although he did give up 127 hits and 62 runs in his 142 and a third innings pitched, it was enough to have him be the main guy in the bullpen for the Pilots. Now, it's not really a huge surprise that an expansion team struggled in their first year in the big leagues, but that wasn't really the problem. You see, one of the biggest problems that faced the team was that the stadium that they played in was just too small. I mean, although Six Stadium was at the time called one of the best ballparks in minor league baseball, it only held 30,000 people. And that was after the expansion. People just weren't really going to the games. Only 677,944 total fans showed up to see the Pilots play, which was the 20th highest total in the 24-team league. The Pilots had asked for another stadium to be built, but the project was put to a halt. However, it was eventually restarted um, to become the Kingdom just a few years later. But at this point, the Pilots were just hemorrhaging money. Daly refused to give the Pilots any more money, and it became pretty clear that a new owner would have to step in with a brand new ballpark if the team were to stay alive. And this is where Bud Selig stepped in. Selig, who was a former car salesman and Milwaukee Braves owner, decided that he wanted to bring baseball back to Milwaukee. So, Soriano sold the Pilots to Selig for $10.8 million, and just like that, After one season in the major leagues, the Seattle Pilots were now the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers would, for the most part, keep the colors of the Pilots, who had navy blue, gold, and white as their main colors. Although, later on into the 2000s, the Brewers would go with a much darker blue and a slightly more yellowy gold. But still, they did what they could to pay homage to the team that only played a single season in the big leagues. The next team that I want to talk about is much cleaner than the last one. On October 17, 1960, the National League granted an expansion franchise to the Houston Sports Association, giving them an option for a Major League Baseball team to play in the 1962 season. The initial formations of the team were a little bit shaky for the Colt 45s as well, as the Houston Sports Association had to either make a deal with or completely buy out the Houston Buffaloes, which was a minor league team, in order to obtain these quote-unquote territorial rights so that they could play in the Houston area. After much negotiation, the Houston Sports Association purchased the Houston Buffaloes on January 17, 1961. Now, at this point, you might be wondering how the Houston Colt 45s got their rather interesting name. Well, you see, the name was chosen after a Name the Team contest was held in the Houston area, and was eventually won by a William Irving Netter, who chose the name since the Colt 45 name was so well known as the gun that won the West. So, you know, pretty interesting. The 1962 season would be the Colts' best year, 
even though they went 64-96-2. The new expansion team, much like the Pilots, struggled pretty heavily against the National League division, finishing 8th in the field of 10 teams. Their manager, Harry Kraft, was the first manager in Houston's Major League history after he moved to Houston from Chicago, where he had helped to lead the Chicago Cubs in Phil Wrigley's College of Coaches. Now, if you've never heard of this rather unorthodox College of Coaches way of running a team, Wrigley decided to not have a permanent manager, but would rather instead rotate the head coach job among all of the coaching staff. This, of course, didn't work, and Kraft decided to just leave because of it. Kraft would coach for the Colts for all three years and would lead the Colts to 196 wins, 288 losses, and two tie overall record. So, a 420 record overall. Some rather notable players that came out of this squad include Turk Farrell, who went 10-20 and 20 with a 302 ERA in 1962, Hull Woodchick, who went 11 and 9 with a 197 ERA in 1963, and Bob Bruce, who went 15 and 9 with a 276 ERA in 1963. So, as you can tell, pitching wasn't as much of a problem for this team. Well, not as much as the offense. In 1962, the team hit 246 with 1370 hits and 105 home runs. This, by far, was the best offensive year that the Colts would have. In 1963, the bats went cold, as the team slugged 220 with just 1,184 hits and only 62 home runs in the 162-game season. 1964 would only be a bit better, as the team would hit 229 with 1,214 hits, and 70 home runs. So, better, but not a lot better. All this time, the Colts had been playing at Colt Stadium, which was another just sort of temporary home for the Colts as the Astrodome was being built just a block away. This park, much like the Pistols' sixth stadium, only sat 33,000 a small number compared to the Astrodome's 67,925 seats. So, by the end of the 1964 season, the Colt 45s would move to the Astrodome, hoping that the new stadium, and the new name, would change the team for better. On December 1st, 1964, the team announced that their name would change from the Colt 45s to the Astros. Now, there is some significance behind the name change as the name of the team, and actually the name of the stadium as well, honored Houston's position at the real center of the nation's new space program. You see, NASA opened the manned spacecraft center, which is now the Johnson Space Center, in 1961, just three years before. So, the team decided that a name change to honor such a feat was well-deserved. However, as you might have guessed, the name change and the new stadium, yeah, didn't really help the Astros' record. From 1965 to 1968, the Astros finished in 9th place, 8th place, 9th place, and 10th place. Actually, it wasn't until 1972 
that the Astros finished above 500 when they won 84 of their 153 games that they played that season. The closest that they came to a winning record before that was 1969 when they finished 81-81 and in their first year after joining the National League West. Since the start of baseball's modern era, around 1960, the Colt 45s and the Seattle Pilots were the only two teams that experienced this weird couple-year growing pains era before becoming the Houston Astros and the Milwaukee Brewers. No other teams went through as drastic of changes like these two teams did. I mean, the Los Angeles Angels are probably the closest, but even they played as such before changing their name to the California Angels, which then in turn would eventually circle its way back to the Los Angeles Angels that we have today. But honestly, it's been fun just taking a look back at these old teams and seeing what could have been. I mean, imagine if the pilots never went broke and had Ken Griffey Jr. lighting up the kingdom as a pilot. Or having Yuli Gurriel and Jose Altuve hitting absolute bombs out of Minute Maid Park as a Colt 45. I mean, there's so many weird and interesting what-ifs in baseball, of which this is just another page in the history book. So in next week's episode, we're going to start a brand new trend and go through each division in a search for the best player on every team in every division for the history of that team. So be sure to tune in and see if it's who you would guess. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. Amazon workers at the Alabama Amazon Warehouse are set to vote once again on whether or not to unionize. According to Alina Selyuk at National Public Radio, a National Labor Relations Board official is requesting a second vote due to evidence that Amazon pressured staff to vote against unionizing. The effort to bring a union to Amazon warehouse employees comes from the retail, wholesale, and department store union. NPR says, quote, Amazon is America's second largest private employer with over 950,000 employees, end quote. Due to the evidence showing that Amazon engaged in union busting prior to the first vote, the labor board is scrapping its results in favor of the revote. Amazon is expected to appeal this decision, with Kelly Nantel, a spokesperson from Amazon, saying, quote, It's disappointing that the NLRB has now decided that these votes shouldn't count. As a company, we don't think unions are the best answer for our employees, end quote. President Joe Biden met with retail executives to prepare them for supply chain shortages in the holiday season. 
According to Megan Vasquez at CNN, Biden's roundtable focused on working with CEOs of large grocers and retailers to strengthen the United States supply chain as issues continue to emerge. Biden said that this year, he expects the holidays to be smoother than last year. Best Buy, Food Lion, Walmart, and Etsy CEOs were among those in, in attendance. Biden focused on the positive changes going into the 2021 holiday season, pointing to how overall food insecurity went down compared to last year. And he said, quote, consumer spending has recovered to where it was headed before the pandemic, end quote. The president is expected to give a speech on the issue Wednesday. The World Health Organization says mutations present in the new Omicron COVID-19 variant pose a very high risk based on early research, which has largely been conducted in South Africa. According to a writer's team at the Associated Press, the U.S. and the European Union, among other nations, moved to ban travelers from South Africa. The WHO said there is a possibility that the new variant could be more contagious and get past an immune response created by vaccinations. The variant has no deaths linked to it yet, but due to a lack of vaccinations worldwide, this variant is more contagious and more likely to cause serious illness. Spain reported Monday of cases of the Omicron variant, along with Portugal and Scotland. Prosecutors are appealing the U.S. Supreme Court about a state Supreme Court decision which allowed comedian Bill Cosby to be released in under three years after facing conviction for sexually assaulting a woman. According to Anastasia Tsiolkas at National Public Radio, Cosby was charged with indecent assault in April of 2018, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned that decision in June. If taken by the U.S. Supreme Court, Justices would review a state court's decision which promised freedom to Cosby. Cosby went free after the state Supreme Court said that his right to due process was violated. While Cosby was accused by multiple women, he was only originally charged for an assault against former Temple University women's basketball team employee, Andrea Constand. Constand alleged that Cosby drugged and assaulted her. Former District Attorney Bruce L. Castor, who handled the Cosby case in Pennsylvania, originally said he would not have criminal charges put against him. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins and the Rocky Mountain Review. 90.5 KCSU FM Fort Collins. My name is Aaron, And I'm Naomi Homer. And we're here with the band based right out of Denver, Radio Fluke. Yeah, I'm Michael. I play the bass guitar. Uh, my name is Blake, and I am the drummer. Uh, I'm Caleb. I play lead guitar. And uh, my name is Kingston Lindner, and I'm the front man. How did Radio Fluke start, and how did you guys all meet each other? We met each other before the band had ever started. Blake and I went to high school together as well as Michael. And in my freshman year, Michael was a senior in high school and Blake was a sophomore. And uh, we had all met and never thought of jamming or being in a band together and years went by. And then kind of after my senior year, Blake and I got together and started just recording random covers and throwing them up on YouTube and just having fun. There was never a thought of a band ever forming. It was just like, I have recording equipment from my father, who's a musician. And it was like, let's just have fun and record before I go off to college. And then I went off to one college. It sucked. I came back and I was like, let's do a real thing and like started writing our own music. Um, and then when I transferred into the college, I went to um, CU Denver for their music program. I met Caleb through a weird coincidence of a roommate. Like my roommate came home after having a night out and he was like, dude, I met this man. He freaking shreds on the guitar. You got to meet him. And as a musician, that happens sometimes. And you're like, OK, sure, man, definitely plays guitar. 
And then, then you, you, you know, 50% of the time you meet the guy and he's playing Wonderwall. Like, it's, like he wrote it. He's like, I added this little sus chord thingy. It's super cool. And that's kind of all he does. We were not expecting what we got. If any of you have heard Caleb play live or on any of our songs. He shreds. But yeah, Caleb randomly showed up in the apartment one day and I just looked at him. I was like, you want to jam on a track? And he's like, sure, why not? And I gave him a guitar of mine and we recorded this old song and I was like, just uh play whatever feels right for the track, played it for him and he goes down and first take, I'm like, You wanna be in a band? Like there's a spot with your yeah, name you on, it. Come right on it. Like it'd be much, great. Yeah, it was pretty much exactly like that. Like I remember it was it was weird because it wasn't my instrument. It wasn't like anything that I was super used to and I'd never like recorded before. And yeah, King just invited me over. I put down one track and it's like he didn't even say anything. I, I think I don't think you said anything. I think you were just like, You wanna be in a band? Like just right. Pretty much. It. it was it was pretty cool. And now it's been three years, made a bunch of music and had a lot of fun doing it. Your website says that you guys are based out of Denver. So is that where you guys kind of like started completely? And like, where do you perform the most? Do you perform the most in the Denver area? or like So that? far in the, you know, like we said, Caleb's our network guy. So in the last <laughs> couple months, we've been playing down here quite a bit. We're really enjoying <laughs> the response that we're getting from playing down here. Like we've played for... A crowd for his fraternity that was pretty excited and you know i think part of that is just live music being back and i think the other part of it is that we're awesome we rock yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean three of us live in denver so that's where we're kind of based out of denver is but as blake's saying it's slowly turning into denver slash fort collins fort collins knows how to party and we love people who party so we're having a good time playing up here quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, nice. So just like the northern Colorado kind of Yeah. Area. Okay, cool. That's kind of it. Like hitting the college towns has been our um Yeah. And this is the first college town that we've really settled down and reached out to. And it helped a lot that we had a, a bandmate who was at the college. Yeah. So he he knew what events were playing and he knew how to get us in there and it was really it's been great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been fantastic up here. Like, the reception of everybody that's heard us, even just walking by. We played at the uh, the homecoming football tailgate recently. Yeah. And at, people were just walking by and stopping by and listening. I mean, it was, a, it was a really cool experience. And it's just, like, just to get that reaction from people up here has been phenomenal. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy to see. So, like, what inspires Radio Fluke? Like, what inspires your music or your lyrics? Like, what do you guys pull from? Wow, that's, um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, a lot of different places. It comes from all over, yeah. Blake's right, hit this hit right on the head there. I mean, I think all of us grew up playing music and having music in the household somewhere, somehow. So I think that plays into a big part of it. Um, I think fun is like the biggest thing. Like, there's, you know, we talk and we're like, Oh, I hope one day we can do this and do that. But like when it comes down to it, the thing that's like the most fun and we love doing the most is just having fun and writing the music, you know, goofing around. It all comes from like personal areas and we all have our influences we draw from. I mean, everyone in the band has their own unique influence. It's not like we all listen to the same exact 12 groups all the time. And that's how we go into the band. I mean, every single one has something unique about us that we like. And there's crossover in everything. And it's resulted in some really cool, unique sounds where like if it was just me or, or it was just me and Blake or if just one piece of the puzzle was missing, the band would sound completely different. Yeah. Like what would you say your genre is then? 
Alternative rock is about the closest I've ever been able to come. We've got classic sounds that take you right back into the 70s and have a good old time. And then we've got some heavy rock that'll take you into the 2090s, whatever. You know, guitar-based music, that is not all it is. Our <laughs> drummers and bass players add a, hell, a heck of a lot to the show. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Yeah, you're good. <laughs> Just gushing over my bandmates here. Oh. <laughs> you got Isabella um, up here. And then was that, you guys recorded that, when did you record that? This year? Isabella, we recorded back in the spring, probably in March. Nice. March, okay, April, cool. We will take a break and listen to that. And right on. So Sweet. We'll be yeah, right awesome. back. Drag me here, sticky gloves full of beer I'd rather be back home so I could be alone I had to step outside, she crashed into my night Said, baby, come with me and I can get you high She's got the eyes of a woman She'll make you feel so sweet But she's not what she sees Before too long, you'll discover that she may catch your eye, but it's all a disguise. Isabella. Takes off that mask of hers It's like a massacre I'm not sure what to do And it's that black dress That got me here My friends, they interfered Cause they already knew That she's got the eyes Of a woman She'll make you feel so sweet Now she's the one she sees Before too long You'll discover that she may catch your eye, but it's all a disguise. Isabella. guys um 
I did see, I saw on your website that you guys say that you like cover band, and I know that was an original song. So like, how did you guys, how do you guys transition into doing original music, or is that something you do often? Uh, original music is probably the full gig now. Started out as the cover band again, like Blake and I putting up YouTube videos. I think it just kind of started um, from just my dad always instilled in me. He was like, if you want to make money in the music business, write your own stuff. He's like, all I've ever done is played covers. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I always wish I wrote my own stuff. And so I kind of took that to heart and sat down with Blake and was like, let's write some stuff. And we just wrote and kind of developed. And again, as Michael and Caleb came on, um, it just became really natural. And it's kind of the point where we've done, we have a whole album recorded that we're kind of slowly releasing here. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's kind of just writing as much music as possible because it's really fun playing stuff you've written. I think also to add to that though, like it's the cover songs are amazing. Like it's so much fun to play those live. Cause that's like, that's, you know, a lot of those songs are stuff that we listen to and stuff that inspired us. And so it's like, it's really fun to, actually be able to get that and kind of live that experience of like oh well this might have been what these guys felt like and I, I think it is super fun to still do the covers but the originals are that's where it's at especially like like for me personally because i joined the band a lot later than these guys so i haven't been super super involved in like most of the writing of the songs but just getting to play songs that like are just original and ones that like these guys came up with and having people react to that and like, like i remember people come up to me and say like songs like she knows she's trouble and stuff mm -hmm. i think that's my role is that our biggest original on Spotify? I think Ready to Go is our biggest Ready original, go, which is funny. Songs like that, like people coming up and saying like, oh, this is awesome. That's like, that's insane to yeah. hear is just like people like something that we came up with. And that's a, that's a weird concept, but it's, it's you know, fun. Pretty cool. Well, the thing with covers is like when you're playing a show, people recognize the songs more often, especially when you're starting out. So it's very useful to like bring a crowd in and and that kind of thing and they can sing along and like yes. whatever so then you you like sprinkle it and you you go back and forth yeah i can definitely see that going to a concert i i always like it when like they at least play one cover because then i can be like okay i know this one <laughs> right right yeah and you guys do a really good job at covering the songs that you do where do you guys practice and write since one of you is up here all of you are in denver you guys mostly Go to Denver. What's the plan? What's yeah, your... it's, I usually make the the long haul down. See with these boys. Um, yeah, I mean, that's most of the stuff is going on in Denver. I kind of yeah, we're practicing down in Denver. We're in the process of building our own studio and practice space um, down there. Awesome. Kind of a radio fluke home base. Um, so that'll be up and running here in the next month. So that's kind of going to be our home base, but. Outside of that, recently, we've just been using whatever um, resources are available to us. There are practice spaces you can rent out, or um, I'm still in school at the Denver campus for CU, so, um, and in the music program, so there are studios and practice spaces that we can use there, and they're free, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And so uh, practicing there and just writing has happened uh, plenty of different places. Uh, we wrote the whole last album you know, during COVID in mm -hmm. quarantine. So we, none of us were actually, um, obviously down at school living in Denver. Yeah, No one was doing anything. We were up in our hometown of Avon. Yeah. And so we were in my, uh, garage. I had a garage studio that I had built with a bunch of stuff. And it was like truly a garage band moment. Oh, we so wrote cool. 10 songs that, uh, 
And recorded them. Yeah, Isabella was in the garage. Oh, that's sick. Yeah. yeah. And all the new songs coming out are in the garage as well. And yeah, just true garage band rock and roll fashion. Just sat down. We tried to sesh it out as much as we could with my yard furniture that usually sits on the porch in the summertime. And the broken symbols that we've used. And we had to hodgepodge a lot of stuff, but Kingston's dad and the fact that Kingston, like, had the access and the know-how more more so yeah. to do that kind of stuff um i think we would not be anywhere we'd be we'd be nowhere without that help which is so cool yeah. so crazy cool and then what kind of message are you guys trying to put out with your music Man. <laughs> it can be any like vibes or like what are you just like trying to like I think put out to the world. For me, it's fun. Yeah. Like if if you're having fun, then we're having fun kind of thing. And yeah. that's kind of what the world <clears throat> needs in my opinion. It's yeah. a little more fun. And so if I can bring that to someone and if we can bring that to someone then that's that's all the better. Yeah, it's definitely having a good time is like the main, you know, every song has its personal message that to us and hopefully to fans and listeners means its own individual thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of them, not all of them, definitely not all of them, but a lot of them stem from some form of realness that has happened in someone's life. Um, and so, you know, maybe a little bit of relatability if you listen to a song and you're like, I feel that we appreciate it, but also like Blake hitting on the head and having fun and like going on and putting a good time. Like, you know, we love for you to listen to our music and have it, but like coming to a show and getting to rock with you guys is like truly where we shine and what we enjoy the most, like getting to play and just have fun partying with everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, like being music, at least I feel like in our opinion, like being a musician is like the coolest job in the world. Like you get <laughs> to just make music and be around people all the time and like do your own thing. Like, and that's such a cool, like that's just such an awesome opportunity to have. And that's like why I think a lot of us kind of fell in love with music. I know that's why I did was just yeah. like watching some of my heroes, like a lot of the classic rock kind of guys, just the the fun that they were having. And like music makes people happy and it brings people, it makes people feel good, you know? Do you have any, any... Any last final thoughts? If you liked what you heard there on a few minutes ago on the radio, go uh, check us out on Spotify, Apple Music. Um, you know, all our details we usually can find on our Instagram, which is at official underscore Radio Fluke, or uh, on our website, RadioFluke.com. You're listening to KCSU Fort Collins at 90.5 FM. Tune in to... What's up, guys? It's Hannah Conda. Listen to my show 1 3 p.m. on Tuesdays. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, the team played their final game of this season on Saturday and lost 51-10 against Nevada after Coach Adazio's ejection during the first half. In women's basketball, the team started their season 5-1 with their first loss during this weekend to the 10th ranked team in the country, 
Louisville. Their matches this week are against Harvard and UTSA in Arizona. In men's basketball, the team remains undefeated going 7-0, beating UNC most recently. The matches this week are against Little Rock and St. Mary's here at Moby Arena. In women's volleyball, the team was beat by UNLV in the Mountain West Tournament on Thursday, but their season is not over yet. The Rams are hosting the National Invitational Volleyball Championship here at Moby. The first match of the two matches that will be played for the Rams will begin on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. against Houston Baptist, and the second game will be on Friday at 7. In cross-country, the women placed 17th in the NCAA championship to end their season. In women's swim and dive, the team competed in the Phil Hansen Invite. They took home 4th for the first two days and 5th on the final day. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for basketball, volleyball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. Former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes testified in Congress last week as a witness and says that her former romantic partner and Theranos second executive, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, emotionally and sexually abused her. According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, Holmes and her lawyers argue that this abuse during a crucial point in the development of Theranos as a business interfered in Holmes's ability to think clearly about her decisions. Holmes said she dropped out of Stanford after a separate sexual assault and quickly got into a relationship with Balwani, who is 17 years older than her. She was 20, and he was 37 at the time. Last week, Holmes said that Theranos put letterheads of Pfizer and Sharing Plow on documents she sent to potential investors and partners without those companies' knowledge. Prosecutors previously said Holmes forged documents for the purpose of showing credibility, even when companies explicitly distanced themselves from Theranos. Theranos was a biotech startup that offered blood testing using smaller amounts of blood to detect health issues. And in 2017, Holmes and Balwani were charged with fraud. Holmes said her decision to add the company's letterheads was because they'd previously worked with her company and not because she wanted people to believe they endorsed her startup. In an internal memo to Tesla, CEO Elon Musk told employees to focus on minimizing costs rather than rushing to deliver products before the end of the quarter. According to John Porter at The Verge, Musk said that these rush deliveries don't create better outcomes for the company and often burn out employees. Generally, Tesla tries to increase deliveries by 50% each year. Due to supply chain shortages, Tesla struggled to deliver cars with all of their typical features. CNBC reported that car deliveries were delayed throughout the year due to a shortage in Tesla parts, and some cars were delivered with missing parts due to the global microchip shortage. Musk sent out this memo a month after news broke that Tesla reached 241,000 global deliveries in quarter three of 2021. For comparison, the company delivered a total of around 500,000 cars in 2020 altogether. Jack Dorsey stepped down as Twitter's CEO on Monday. According to Michelle Chapman, Barbara Oshute, and Tali Arbel at the Associated Press, Dorsey co-founded Twitter and left the company, saying he wants Twitter to break away from its original people and its past. Dorsey left Twitter once before, in 2008, after serving in the role for a year, and returned in 2015. Dorsey sent out the first-ever Twitter post in March of 2006. He faced criticism as he served as both the CEO of both Square and Twitter at the same time, due to concerns that he would struggle to leave both companies meaningfully and effectively. Twitter's chief technology officer, Parag Agrawal, replaces Dorsey as CEO. That's all for tech news. We'll be right back with Weird News with Portia Cook. 
several marine animals, including lobsters, squid, crab, and octopuses, will be recognized as sentient beings as a part of a new law passed by the United Kingdom's government. According to Live Science, the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill was first proposed in May and is currently under review. It proposed protections for all vertebrae or animals with a backbone. On November 19th, the UK government announced the addition of two invertebrate groups to the bill. Cephalopod mollusks, which include octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish, and decapod crustaceans, which include crabs, lobsters, shrimps, and crayfish. The decision to add the two invertebrate groups to the bill came after the London School of Economics published a new report reviewing evidence suggesting the creatures sentience from hundreds of studies on each group. Lead researcher Jonathan Birch was pleased to see the government implementing the recommendation of his team's report, saying, in quote, After reviewing 300 scientific studies, we concluded that cephalopod mollusks and desicopod crustaceans should be regarded as sentient and should therefore be included within the scope of animal welfare law. End quote. The November 19th report defines sentience as the capacity to feel pain, pleasure, hunger, thirst, joy, comfort, and excitement. The study focused on evidence from different pain receptors, such as possession of pain receptors and specific brain regions associated with pain. Through behavioral experiments, the study further found these animals to make choices to avoid painful or stressful scenarios. According to the UK government, the Animal Welfare Sentient Bill will, quote, provide crucial assurance that animal well-being is rightly considered when developing new laws, end quote. The bill will not affect existing legislation surrounding these animals, including transporting them in cold water and boiling them alive without stunning them or other extreme slaughter methods. One Maryland woman recently claimed her third $50,000 lottery prize. According to CNN, the 61-year-old lottery player from Montgomery County, Maryland, bought two lucky scratch-off tickets in Bethesda. While the first ticket was not a winner, the second earned her the game's top prize of $50,000, her third $50,000 lottery winning in three years. In August of 2018, she won a $50,000 bonus cash game. The following October, she won again, playing the cash craze doubler, all from the same store. The retired housekeeper told lottery officials, quote, I just didn't believe it. Again, people play every day and don't win. It's amazing I won three times, end quote. The lucky three-time winner plans to use the money for home improvements. Researchers have successfully shrunk a camera to the size of a coarse grain of salt, and it still takes pictures. According to physics.org, micro-sized cameras have long been useful to spot problems within the human body and enable sensing in micro-sized robots. Still, past approaches have only ever captured grainy, distorted images with limited field of view. However, researchers at Princeton University and the University of Washington have since successfully produced an ultra-compact camera the size of a coarse grain of salt. According to a report published in the Nature Communications on November 29th, the new microcams produced clear, full-color images that would typically be created through a conventional compound camera lens that's 500,000 times larger in volume. The new optical system relies on metasurface technology, which can be produced much like a computer chip. At just half a millimeter wide, the metasurface is studded with 1.6 million cylindrical posts, all the approximate size of a human virus. While successful, Ethan Sang, a computer science PhD student at Princeton who co-led the study, said, in quote, It's been a challenge to design and configure these little microstructures to do what you want. It's challenging because there are millions of these little microstructures and it's not clear how to design them in an optimal way.
end quote. The new camera could aid in minimally invasive endoscopy with medical robots to improve imaging for other robots with size and weight constraints and diagnose and treat diseases. That's all for Weird News. I'm Portia Cook, and now for the weather. Today was cool and mostly sunny with a high of 58 and a low of 38 with 9 mile per hour winds. Wednesday, you can expect warm and partly cloudy skies with a high of 70 and a low of 39. And Thursday will be about the same, with sunny skies and a high of 71 with a low of 38. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And you can also check us out on Spotify by searching KCSU News. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.